So really what this talk is about is the way that monopoly firms have been able to commoditize the private time and space for profit. So especially in the light of COVID and a majority of us working and learning from home, so much of our world is taking place online. And instances that were once private are now hosted on public platforms and instances that were once public are now taking place on privately owned, owned spheres and in owned platforms. Um, there's not really a meaningful opt out to this process. So then the question becomes the way that tech is able to come into my existential space, my lived experience and shape it in a way that I can neither discern nor anticipate nor resist because the fabrication is literally engineered to be out of my awareness. So what we're seeing play out is an instance where racialized people are being brazenly evacuated out of their own knowledge production. We're seeing data accumulation largely happen through extraction, wherein data is taken with little regard for consent or compensation. And in many ways, the goal of quantifying and transforming everything into data and the search for new sources of data echoes imperialist modes of accumulation that we've seen over the course of time. So monopoly in this space has been amassed through a combination of horizontal mergers and pricing strategies, which we're going to get into, that limit, comp uh, limit competition and create barriers to entry. So I just want to keep in mind, like we used to keep we used to think of monopoly as kind of detrimental to society in that it reduced innovation and consumer welfare. But as we're seeing big mergers all over tech, it doesn't seem like the needle is moving much on regulation. And all of this is taking place against a backdrop of historic legacies of racism and is furthering the adverse impact of racialized people around the world. So with that said, just a little bit of stakeholder analysis. So my research focus on, focuses on four firms primarily, and that's Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook. Noticeably, all of these firms are headquartered in the United States. And I think what that demonstrates to us is how existing geopolitical structures and hegemonies are playing out in this space. Okay, so now that we know who the big players are, we're going to talk a little bit about how they got so big, right? So the two primary strategies that I focus on are predatory pricing and unrestricted mergers. So when we think of predatory pricing, that's more of your typical monopolistic behavior, and you can contextualize that by thinking about a firm like Amazon. So um, what they do is they'll undercut uh, small businesses or, or their competition, and because they occupy such a large space in a monopoly, they're able to do so with little cost to themselves. They're also the only ones who are able to do that because they're the only ones who, who occupy so much space. The other is through unrestricted merger activities. So Facebook was able to merge with WhatsApp and Instagram, Amazon acquired Whole Foods. Um, I think what's notable about the Amazon instance is that they bought Whole Foods, which was the sixth largest grocery chain in the United States for $13 billion. Right after they announced that merger, their stock value rose about 3%, adding $14 billion to their value. So they essentially got to acquire the sixth largest grocery chain in the United States for free. And again, they're only able to do that because they occupy such a large monopolistic space in a way that nobody else does. So um, in terms of regulation, it's very difficult to hone in on, uh, on, a, on a structure that doesn't use 
priced products. So what I mean by that is that Facebook is a free platform, right? And the way that we're used to conceptualizing antitrust is through price. Um, so we dive into this a little bit deeper, but that's sort of the reason why there hasn't been much legislation on this front. And in terms of epistemic power, yes, when you are monopolistic, you are able to increase your share of economic power. But as these big tech platforms have been able to get so big, they've also been able to increase their share of the available data. And so I think what that does is it concentrates, yes, economic power, but also epistemic power. And globally, this power is already concentrated in powerful countries. And so we're seeing this dynamic be exacerbated. Um, just a quick note, when I refer to epistemic power, what I mean is the ability to create promote and produce knowledge. So um, on any type of platform, we're seeing both of these two things play out. So I think it's helpful to first start with an understanding of a good in, in this context. Um, I am an econ nerd at heart, so I love this graph. Um, so if you just take a look at it, basically what you see is on this side, rivalrous and non-rivalrous and excludable and non-excludable. So the ones I want to pay attention to are rivalrous excludable goods. So if you think of something like a parking space, I can exclude someone else from it and we compete for it. So it's rivalrous and it's excludable. Then if we go down into this space, it's non-rivalrous and non-excludable. So those are things like a public good. So for example, national defense, I can't tell the army, just protect my house, ignore my neighbors, clean air. I can't just breathe free air by myself. So those are things that are non-excludable and non-rivalrous. And I think that this is an important thing to keep in mind because we have to think of how we're gonna situate data as a good, but also public goods like free media, which are increasingly moving online. Um, so just keep that in mind as we move through. Okay, so data as a commodity, Data is collected from millions and billions of users in as many instances, and it can only become commodified once it is algorithmically bundled together into the commodity that we know is big data. So the individual, so you and I produce data, but we don't have the power to commodify our data in the same way. So big data, which is actually the profitable commodity, only emerges from being big. As monopolies make firms bigger, they make it so that they're the only actors who have the power to extract, commodify, and learn from our data. So really it's about their position in being uniquely poised to commodify data in this way. And many of the times they do so under the guise of providing a subsidized service, right? So um, when I log on to Facebook, it's free. I can do my thing on Instagram, it's free. But there's a saying in data ethics that a lot of people throw around that I think is helpful. And they say, if you're not paying for it, you're the product. I think that's especially true in this instance. And I think that the way that it's being done really models or really parallels extractivism, which has long been a colonial theme. And this economic model is basically the idea of taking without reciprocity. That is most certainly something that we're seeing when it comes to the commodification of data especially when we use terms like data mining or data collection, we sort of conceptualize data as if it's a neutral resource that kind of exists out in the world, um, when in fact it's not a neutral resource and, and the process of accumulation is not a neutral process of accumulation. So data accumulation and data and the commodification of data is increasingly invasive. It increasingly monitor monitors us, it increasingly probes and tracks everyone, 
but especially racialized communities. So this also happens without consent, without fair compensation. So you're, you'll see that a little bit more in the, in the case studies that we run through. And hopefully what will become clear is that not only does this model drain resources, but it also blocks the capacity for historically underserved people to create, produce, and develop their own data for commodification or for profit. So I think personal data location is a good um, is a good example of this. This is a market that's largely dominated by Google. They create about 600 million US dollars of surplus value annually. And an example is the way that Google was able to acquire Nest. So Nest is a company that manufactures smart thermostats and other household electronics. They're valued at about $3.2 billion in 2014. And I think what's notable about this instance is that it's not the service or the product that's profitable. So it's not the actual thermometer that's profitable. It's the commodification of private time and private space. So it's the commodification of your home and my home that is creating monetary value. So it's the way that data collectors are able to extract surplus value from users' day-to-day -day activities by dispossessing the producer of what they have produced. And so I think that in this process, the data producer lacks agency in how and when their data is being used. So just because I install a smart thermometer, I'm not necessarily consenting to having my voice data or my, uh, my activity, my day-to-day -day activity be commoditized in this way. And so again, like the economic power that comes from that the, and the capacity to produce economic power from these activities happens through extraction and is, and is reserved for monopoly players in this space. So another example is sort of when I first started becoming interested in AI pathologies, we, we had an idea about bias and we thought about bias as largely being a black box problem. So what basically what that meant was like AI is opaque. We don't know enough about it. It's, it's not transparent. And so that's why we're having bias manifest on these fronts. So we really thought about it in terms of like a machine learning obfuscation problem. And there was a real push by academics for transparency, which was great. So we got a little bit more transparency. We understand these models a little bit more. But what we're seeing now is that even when algorithms are beyond any doubt biased against, against a certain population, so they've been audited and proven to be biased, there is very little pushback against using them. So the example that I have up on the screen is from an algorithm called GPT-3. That's oh, always a tongue twister for me, but um, basically what it is, is it's an algorithm it's developed by a company called OpenAI, and it's proven to be biased against Muslim communities. So the bias is most evident when you give the algorithm any sort of language processing. So for example, any phrase containing the word Muslim, when this algorithm was asked to complete a sentence, it completed the sentence with words that were associated with, with violence, with shooting, bombs, and murder. So we know without beyond a doubt this algorithm is biased, but it was still released in a, in a, in a closed beta version of the model and they sold restricted access to this algorithm, which Microsoft bought. So Microsoft exclusively licensed this algorithm with the intention of putting it in its products, though we don't know which ones yet. And these decisions really raise questions about what makes an algorithm too broken to release 
And why doesn't bias seem like an impediment in the production of knowledge and language technologies? The other thing to consider here is that there isn't really a market alternative in a lot of the cases for big tech products, but we know that they're embedded with bias. So again, we have to take these platforms at kind of face value and we take the things they produce as, as truth. Um, and so just moving through this, I think it's really important that we interrogate these biases themselves, but also how they manifest themselves through, through society when, we, when they're left unquestioned. So this is from the same algorithm. And as you can see, different populations or different community um, markers are associated with different things. So the most overwhelming bias comes from the word Muslim, but the bias, bias was also proven to be anti-Semitic when you put in the word Jewish as well. So another example is in the way that the public square has moved online, right? So if we go back to my conceptualization of goods and the way that we thought about the public square as being non-rivalrous and non-excludable, we always have traditionally thought of the public square as being the exchange of ideas. Um, so the dissemination of information that happens on platforms that is now happening on platforms like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, um, more often than not, the user is not critically engaging with these platforms. So the user is taking what they see on these platforms and are considering these sources of information to be valid. So the firms that monopolize this space are then granted the power to arbitrate the line between fact and fiction by serving as the sole moderators on these platforms. So I think the most problematic aspect of this is the, the disproportionate power that a platform like Facebook gets in its unilateral control over speech. So there has never been a precedent for the ability to monitor, organize, and censor the conversations of 2 billion people until now. So like economic power, epistemic power is increasingly being reserved for those who hold a monopoly over this space. And so I think the question that we need to ask ourselves here is, if we as a society are going to use platforms like Facebook and Google to the extent of placing the public square online, which it seems like we are, I mean, I wake up in the morning and I check Twitter and I check Facebook and that's how I get my news. We have to stop and consider whether or not we're comfortable with a single actor or a single content moderator being the arbiter of truth for conversations that have a real impact on real communities. And I think as we, as we examine this dynamic a little bit further, existing hegemonies always have to be top of mind because those are the power dynamics that are really playing out here. Yeah, so this um, just says we sell ads, Senator, but we all know that Facebook does much more than sell ads and, and that's their position of society is much more than just selling ads. So another way um, that we can think about this is the way that goods are shifting within society, right? So the public square, which, is, which was once considered a public utility is being commoditized and monopolized by profit-driven firms. That should be cause of concern in and of itself, but we should also be thinking of the way that this is going to impact marginalized and racialized communities. So for example, in the way that they prioritize or deprioritize news in the way that they moderate between truth and fiction. 
the decision-making platforms are not apolitical and they're not value neutral, right? So in and of themselves, there is an underlying politics, there is an underlying value system to the way that they moderate and host content. So for example, in areas with where borders are disputed, so such as the West Bank or the Gaza Strip in Palestine and the disputed territory of South Tibet in China, Google especially has not taken an apolitical approach. So in the case of the West Bank, Google recognizes Israel on its maps with bold black letters and Palestinian territory with a much fainter light gray lettering. And the same is true in the case study that I consider, which is the disputed territory of Kashmir that sits between India and Pakistan. So what I have up here is what happens when you use Google Maps in India. It shows Kashmir as being part of India. So you can see that there. And on the left, if you see, if you saw the shift, um, that's what happens when you use Google Maps in Pakistan. So it now shows Kashmir as being part of Pakistan. So there's not a standardized way that Google approaches things. There's not a, a standardized value system to the way that Google approaches things. And what that does is it manifests in the way that we conceptualize things, right? So when we Google something, like when I say I'm going to Google it, I'm literally using it as a synonym for accessing knowledge. So most users are going to take what Google's Maps say at face value. They're going to take it as truth. They're not going to sit there and question the underlying politics behind this map's creation. So I think what that does is it systematically disadvantages those who Google hasn't sided with, right? So in most cases, that turns out to be marginalized or racialized communities. And again, there's very little option for these communities for, to, to have any sort of meaningful recourse and there's very little option to opt out like google maps is the dominant map system so if i don't agree with google's politics what are my meaningful options to either correct them or what are my meaningful options to opt out but because of the monopoly that they've been able to hold on to there aren't any meaningful options so not only do they have now the power to moderate contact, content, but they also are essentially, we're, we've given them the power to create truth, right? Because what is what is truth in this context? Well, it's, it's what Google says it is. So what's a border in this context? It's what Google says it is. And I think it's important to, to realize here that while very imperfect, if you know me, you know I'm not a bread and wood stand, but the global community has established norms and processes over which international political conflicts are handled, right? So we have systematic systems in place like the Bretton Woods agreements that have been perfected and tried. So, and I think, I think what's also important here is that irrespective of an individual's political leaning, so whatever side of the political date you, you sit on, it's still a cause of concern that we're given a private entity, a non-democratically elected entity, the ability to draw international borders in the digital space. Like that is an extraordinary amount of power to, to, to give a private firm with no regulation and no international consensus. So another way that this plays out is through the algorithmic, algorithmic amplification. It's another tongue twister. Um, but basically, that just means that the way that Facebook prioritizes or deprioritizes content in their platform, they are directly in control of what you as a user see or don't see. So again, like when I wake up in the morning and I check Twitter or Facebook, 
if Facebook's in control of whatever news I see, that is of course going to impact the like what I see in the world, right? That's, it's going to impact my worldview. It's going to impact my politics and all that kind of stuff. Um, another like kind of quote that gets thrown around sometimes, which I think is kind of funny, is when people say um, everyone hates Mark Zuckerberg, but nobody can agree why. And it's just this like allusion to the fact that everybody has their own gripe with Facebook, because again, irrespective of the, of the way that you lean politically, Facebook has probably prioritized or deprioritized content, right? Um, and so that's like a, a, another interesting way that this dynamic plays out. And again, I think that there's a real tension here, which is what we need to examine between the commercial incentive and the public good. So when we give powerful, unregulated platforms the ability to, to leverage network effects, and then we allow them to exacerbate all of this through monopolistic behavior, it, all of the, the, the tension between the public good and the commercial incentive really becomes clear here, right? So. At the end of the day, what we need to realize is Facebook and Google are profit-seeking, profit-driven firms. Their goal is to keep as many users on their platform at all times. And more often than not, that's a goal that's going to be at odds with the broader public interest or with social justice, right? Like they are not incentivized to care about the individual. They're incentivized to keep you on their platform. Um, and so when we see people being brazenly evacuated out of their own knowledge production, we have to conceptualize that under the guise of what well, doesn't fit into their business model to do so otherwise. And I think that that's a really important consideration to make. So another case study, another way that this plays out is in the East African economy. So um, my family is Tanzanian, so I guess this might be a little bit more interesting to me, um, but what we see is a tension between the way that their economies conceptualize work and the way that Western-owned firms can conceptualize work. Um, so in Kenya, the, the case study is called Perpetual Debt in the Silicon Savannah. Basically, it's because Kenyan workers operate on what's called a Kadogo economy. So that means small in Swahili. And essentially they're wageless workers, right? So I might go to work from nine to five, collect a wage. That's not the way that majority of workers in Kenya operate. They're wageless in that they're merchants or hawkers. So um, they maybe they sell fruit, maybe they do that. And because of that, their wage are not, they're not paid monthly, right? But they still face constant costs like rent or school tuition. And so there's a temporal disconnect here between available cash and necessary expenditure. So before what we would have to rectify this, this disconnect was a, a community-based model of lending and credit, right? So if I'm short on money this week, I go next door to my neighbor, I ask for a loan, the next week, my neighbor asks me for a loan. In the community-based lending model, each individual is equally likely to be a creditor or a debtor at some point in their life, right? So it's a very like lean on me, I'll lean on you economic model of lending. Um, and with it, but within this context, there has been a shift that we're seeing from community-based lending to lending through tech giants. So through mobile apps, you can get a quick, I think we would call it in North American context, like a payday loan. Um, and so the two major companies that have, that have uh, offered this are Afri in, in the African context are Safaricom and M-Pesa, and then two uh, California-based fintech apps called Tala and Branch. And so 
really what they've been able to do is they've recognized that there's this temporal disconnect, they've exploited it, they've charged up sometimes up to 100% annualized lending rates, right? So there's a clear economic consequence to their action. Again, they're operating as monopolies, they're operating um, in, in, in this guise of a monopolistic behavior. And so there's an obvious economic consequence to that, right? Like you're, you're literally charging people like 100% interest rate, but there's also a very real epistemic consequence that comes with the way that we alter social fabrics with again, very little recourse. So when Western owned firms are positioned now to own all of the credit and African workers are positioned to own all of the debt, we see a dynamic where these firms are not only charging you an exorbitant amount of interest, but they're actually making claims on your future labor, right? So this highlights like how expensive it is to be poor in this context, not only economically, but also in the way that you're able to control your, your labor, your wage, your community. Um, and again, like these firms are all now positioned to collect and own data, which proves to also be extremely and hugely profitable. So especially I think in this way, emphasizing data as a form of expropriation helps us to not gloss over any structural asymmetries that are really at the heart of this like techno-colonial lending model that really relies on extractivism, especially in this context. So I think whether it's domestic or global, what we're seeing is that racialized communities and religious minorities around the world really don't have autonomy over where and how their data is being collected or used. So since 9-11, American Muslim communities continue to be placed under disproportionate surveillance, and that is now being exacerbated by data monopolies, control, and ability to maintain opacity in their operations. So they're not collecting our data in a transparent way. We don't have consent over what's being used. So recently, um, if anybody was following this story, details emerged about an app called Muslim Pro, which was using Muslim, um, so Muslims use this app to like check their prayer locations and prayer times in their respective locations. And Muslim Pro was extracting their data and selling it to the FBI without like user consent or user, like a lot of the time, like users didn't even know that this was happening. And so what happens when you disproportionately survey and collect data from certain communities, um, which has also been, been uh, a real problem with the black community in the United States were more likely than their white counterparts to be the objects of police surveillance in particular. It in part leads to things like overcriminalization and overpolicing because when you are disproportionately serving one community, you are going to disproportionately criminalize because you're going to disproportionately find crime within that community. Um, so yeah, like happy to dive into that a little bit more in Q&A. But really, like the heart of this is the overrepresentation of racialized people as targets of data collection, coupled with the underrepresentation of these same communities in decisions of how and why their data is being used. It's systematically stripping them of agency. Okay, so now on to I think what we actually came here to talk about is which is antitrust. Um, so antitrust is essentially what we talk, what we use to talk about breaking up a monopoly, right? So the question that I had when I was researching this is, okay, like there's clearly an issue. So why have they been able to get away with it for so long? 
most a lot of it is because antitrust in North America is grounded in the idea of consumer welfare as it relates to price. So if a monopoly is proven to drive up prices, which is what a typical economic monopoly would do, then it's easy to rein them, rein them with antitrust regulation. But because these platforms are offering a free service, antitrust just doesn't work in the same way. I think there's also an element here of like a very neoliberal resistance to reining in any kind of any kind of innovation. So in tech, like the, the motto is always like move fast and break things. Well, you're moving too fast and you're breaking too many things and there's not enough regulation keeping up with with that so that's really why we haven't seen antitrust work in this context so some governments have started to put in place rules that try to combat their domination in certain industries so for example uh, american-owned platforms are now being reined back in the french context because they want to promote french media so um, we also saw, I think, with the recent election, a lot of talk about like tech monopolies and how do we rein in big tech. But again, like a lot of the regulation that they wanted to promote was focusing on the economic and not always focusing on the free speech or the epistemic power that monopolies also have a have a control over. And yeah, so in terms of an antitrust law, I think that it could be extremely beneficial for small businesses, especially in the economic context, right? So if we had some sort of economic, uh, sorry, some sort of antitrust that was able to stop predatory pricing, right? I think that that would be beneficial for small businesses, that would be beneficial for consumers, because there would be new players introduced. But the, the potential for increased innovation at this level, I don't think is clear. Um, so overall, it does seem like antitrust is gaining traction, but we have to consider whether antitrust alone can get at the crux of the issue with respect to empowering marginalized and racialized communities. And then in terms of risk, I think it, it warrants mentioning like it has never been easier for a single person free of any affiliation to any other platform to reach a broad and global audience. So media and information platforms, I think in this context are very interesting because they're different from every other industry, right? So we consume them for private enjoyment, but they also provide a necessary and important public good. The media's role in a functioning democracy is typically to keep private citizens informed and to act as a watchdog over political processes. So that's why most modern democracies have placed some kind of limit on media ownership. But increasing competition, so an antitrust law that was only aimed at increasing competition between platforms in this arena, if it reduced barriers to entry by stopping mergers, for example, would potentially break up the speech environment into from one or two platforms to many more. I think while this would definitely redistribute economic gains, the economic competition alone is likely is, is likely to maintain a lot of the information related pathologies on in online platforms. So I think a huge side effect of this would be the risk that users become more siloed in their speech. So imagine if instead of everybody being hosted on Twitter, we had some we had all of the Democrats on one platform, all of the conservatives on one platform, all the NDPs on another platform. And I think if that were to happen, what would happen, we would just further exacerbate an echo chamber effect on social media that we're already seeing. I don't think it would fundamentally target the, the issue that we're 
granting a disproportionate amount of epistemic power to these online platforms. Also, just because of the diversity of the arenas that these platforms already operate in, any antitrust law that would target each of their in individual activities as one unit would also have to be just by nature so all-encompassing that it would in turn end up being restrictive and would actually have the opposite of the, of the intended effect. So I think that any antitrust law aimed at online platforms has to consider the fact that we're already seeing these platforms work in tandem with each other, right? There's very little transparency and it's not clear if just an increase from one or two firms to maybe like 40 or 50 by increasing competition would, would, would better that in any way. Um, so an example of them working in concert, we saw for like months and months or years actually, Trump's administration was able to like spew misinformation and then almost overnight Twitter, kicked him off and then like every other platform kicked him off, right? Like Spotify kicked him off. So it's like, just because there's an increase in competition, it's not guaranteed that they won't act in concert and they won't act in tandem with each other. It seems like everyone is fine with it until nobody is fine with it and no one actor wants to be the pariah. So when we're considering antitrust and increasing competition, how do we fundamentally get at the, the problem of them acting in tandem with each other, right? So I think unless an antitrust law could inspire competition that would host a diversity of thought, action, and more, most importantly, the placement of agency, these issues are kind of likely to remain unsolved. So that said, um, I know I realize I just spent 30 minutes laying out like the case for, for pessimism, but I do really think that there's a case for optimism here. I think especially as data and monopolies start to move into broader cultural understanding, we will see more movement on, the, on these fronts. We have to consider that historically people of color have been the casualties of technologically enabled systems. But that doesn't always have to be the case, right? So I am not, as you can probably tell at this point, a tech evangelist by any means, but I'm also not a tech pessimist. And for me, the solution really lies in reorienting the way that public infrastructure is governed and conceptualized in a much broader sense. So I think antitrust can be super powerful, especially on an economic front, um, but antitrust is not an omnicompetent tool. And so we have to fundamentally target epistemic power imbalances and related speech and public discourse pathologies if we're going to start to combat that issue. Um, I don't think that we should foreclose on any alternatives and just we have to continue to find a way to grapple with the very real epistemic consequences, pushing back on the idea of tech exceptionalism, pushing back that tech should be treated unlike any other industry. And I think when we start to do this, um, hopefully through more conversations at the Center for Ethics, um, and we keep in mind the modes of techno-imperialism and other forms of power asymmetries, that we will really start to see the digital space become more equalized. Um, so that is my hope. And with that said, I am super happy to um, open it up for questions.